0: morning, church. Beautiful Sunday, huh? Thanks for uh, being in worship this morning. My name's John. I serve here as one of the pastors on staff. And this summer, we are making our way through the book of Colossians in our Greater Than series. Colossians, the book, it was actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. I thought it would be sort of interesting this morning to uh, talk a little bit about some geographical stuff. So, Uh, We're going to do that here in a second, but uh, I'm going to jump right in the text this morning. We're in, finally, we've made it to chapter 2 of Colossians. So we're going to be in chapter 2, Colossians 2, the first five verses, verses 1 through 5. Let me start reading that this morning. Paul says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me. Let's look at uh, the map here a second. Whenever Paul points out another city, it's interesting to kind of get a feel for where is that located. So here we have a map. This is modern-day Western Turkey, and you can see uh, there's really a cluster of three cities, really closely connected: Colossae, Laodicea, um, Aeropolis. They're, they're back in the kind of tucked back in this valley called the Lycus uh, Valley. Paul had never visited these cities or these churches, which is kind of interesting, right? Um, We learned in in chapter 1 that Epaphras actually, um, most likely he was uh, converted in Ephesus, made his way down in this valley and planted these churches. But Paul had never been there. It's interesting, though, because Paul actually wrote a, a letter to the church in Laodicea. Interesting, right? Like Colossae, they got a letter and it's included in here. Where is the Laodicea letter? And why is it not in here? We know that that letter was written because at the end of Colossians, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, uh, you in Laodicea and you, are you in Colossae trade letters with those who are in Laodicea. So we know that there was a letter written there. What's interesting, though, is the letter was actually, is actually lost. We have no record of the letter. We have no one's ever found the letter. It's kind of like a Indiana Jones, right? Like someone's going to go and find this this letter, but the letter does not uh, exist. Although we know it was written. What's interesting here is that, to me, is that Paul has this deep love and this desire to encourage and shape and guide and mentor. Uh, he has this love for these churches, and he's never. He never met these people. He had never actually been there. And yet he says that he he wants to tell them how hard he is contending for them, how much he loves them, how how much he cares about them. Let me continue reading in our passage this morning. Paul writes, "My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding." In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. And delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. First thing I want to point out here is this idea of contending. What what does Paul mean when he says, I'm contending for you? So we know uh, that Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. So how does somebody who's in prison, how do they contend for someone? When I think of contending, fighting for, advocating for, working for, contending for them, fighting on their behalf, what does that look like from someone that's in prison? Because clearly Paul wasn't Wasn't in Colossae. We know he didn't go there, but he wasn't working in in the government in Rome trying to contend for the fight for the church so that they can meet freely or safely or have a piece of property or or whatever it is. So Paul, what does it mean that Paul is contending? Let me offer a few thoughts on that. First, I think that Paul is contending for the church in prayer. We read about this in and talked about this in chapter one, right? Paul actually writes out the prayer that he has for the church in Colossae. Well, I believe that Paul contends, that he fights for, that he, he strives for, he yearns for the church through prayer, that he's praying for them, praying that they will know Jesus, that they will follow Jesus, praying for their safety. He prays all sorts of things as we see throughout his letters for the church. So one of the ways that Paul is contending for this church is in prayer. I picture Paul with a prayer list, right? He's written all these different churches that he has seen or heard of or visited or been a part of. And he's on his knees, he's yearning, praying that these believers would make it, praying that the church would grow, praying that they would be strong in their faith in the midst of immense persecution. Second, the second way that Paul is contending for the church, contending for these churches, is he's writing to them. He's encouraging them and instructing them through his letters. Paul's, Paul has written a series of letters to all these different churches over the course of many years. And that's one of the ways, an additional way that Paul is contending for these churches. He cares about them and he d- takes the time and the effort to write these letters and have them delivered to these different churches. So he contends by writing them letters of instruction and encouragement. It's one of, another way that Paul contends for the church. Finally, I think Paul contends for the, the church by offering uh, mentorship and leadership and instruction and teaching to those who are pastoring in these churches. We know that many come and visit Paul while he's in prison or, or had traveled with Paul and then were sent to different churches. And these folks, they were given instruction and mentoring and encouragement by Paul. So he's contending for the church by, by giving uh, coaching and, and guidance to those who are leading in these churches. Through, through all of this, Paul's prayers and Paul's writing and Paul's teaching and mentoring, we, we get a picture of Paul's pastoral heart. Sometimes we we forget about that that Paul, that Paul had this, this heart, this pastor, pastor's heart for these people and for the church. What's fascinating to me is that Paul is not contending here for people he's actually met. He's not contending for people that he's broken bread with and spent time in their homes with. But nonetheless, he has this this deep love for the church. He wants the church worldwide. All the churches that that he knows, he wants them to grow and he wants them to thrive. He wants the the message of the gospel to go forth. He has this, this desire to see these people succeed and grow in their faith. The lesson here for me as I was pr- preparing, and maybe it will be helpful for you too, is, is uh, it, it, I can contend for this church. It, it, there's actual things that I see and do daily as a, as a pastor of this church, contending for this church, praying and teaching and meeting and, and all that stuff that goes on. But how am I contending for the broader, ch- the larger church? people that I haven't met with yet? How do I contend with them? Think of churches that are struggling just to, to meet in secrecy or don't have the financial resources and means and things that we have. Do we contend for the global church? Do we pray for them? Do we learn from them? Do we grow together? Do we encourage each other? I, the side kind of lesson for us this morning. In verse 2, Paul says, begins to share why he is contending. What what are his hopes and, and what are his goals for the church as he's contending hard for them? The first thing is that Paul is contending for them. He, his first, the first part of this goal or his hope for the church is that they would be encouraged in heart. Encouraged in heart. Let's Let's look at these words a little bit closer this morning because I think as we look at the the meaning of these words, it it, it can be really encouraging for us, really challenging for us as well. I don't usually do this because I took like a quarter of a semester in Greek. It was like just enough Greek to be really dangerous with with the Greek. But the Greek word here for encourage, as we look at this word courage, is parakaleo. Parakaleo. This word is used over a hundred times in Scripture. And there isn't a great one-to-one English word translation for parakaleo. There's this, this idea in this word of strengthening. Encur- the, the, the way we, he read it this morning is encouraged. That they would be encouraged, but it's even more than that. It's this strengthening and it's this comfort that comes uh, through this word parakaleia that we can't necessarily get our English words to fully express. It's a robust word, a powerful word, it's a deep word. It's that they would be encouraged and strengthened and comforted in heart. This is what one of Paul's goals for this church. Now, what about the word heart? What is Paul? talking about here because it's important for us to take a little time here and define what encouraged parakaleo in heart means. What does heart mean? What are we talking about? Often when we hear the word heart, we think of Valentine's Day, right? The shape of a heart or pink and red and sort of my heart is fluttering or bursting or kind of this idea, this touchy-feely kind of heart love uh, message, or when we hear the word heart, we say things like, man, he's got a good heart. Bless his heart. She's so good. She's so sweet. What a kind heart. Or how about, how about the idea when we, we think of or we talk about the word heart, we say things like, she's got a lot of heart. Man, you're all heart. Put all your heart into it. Everything that you've got. Or we say things like, Listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. What is it telling you? I think Paul here is, is talking about when he says heart, encouraged in heart. I think Paul is talking about our inner person, the inner person, it, our inner will, the, who we are inside. He's not talking about just emotions. Here he's not talking, also he's not talking about just our mind, our thought, but it's almost like the connection of those two, our inner person, the the seat of responsibility and decision-making inside of us. Our inner person. Paul wants the people of the church to be strong and courageous, have this inner person that's resolute, having having conviction and, and strong belief and, and guided by principle and character and truth. What's interesting here is that Paul recognizes, right, when we think of these two words now together, that, that our inner person, our, our heart, needs to be encouraged. That they would be encouraged in heart, encouraged in who they are, their inner person. It needs to be encouraged, strengthened, comforted. That is what Paul is praying for. And we know that the true comfort and strengthening and encouragement that our inner person, our heart needs, comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, John tells us, is our helper. He also uses the word advocate. The New Testament talks of the Holy Spirit as our teacher. In Romans, the Holy Spirit is our intercessor. In 1 John, the Holy Spirit is called our counselor and our guide. So I would make the case that, that what Paul's talking about here is that people would be, and he's, he said it before in chapter 1, that they would be filled, right? That they would, they would be filled and encouraged and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. The word for Holy Spirit, the word most often used for Holy Spirit is parakaletos, parakaletos. You see the connection there between those two words? Paul Rakaletos, Paul our strengthener, our encourager, our advocate, our guide, our counselor. The Catholic Church uses the word paraclete, right? Connected similarly in there. So there's this connection, this, this ultimate comfort, this ultimate strength in our life comes from the Holy Spirit. Paul's second goal, and and it's attached closely to this first goal of being encouraged in heart. It's that they would be united in love. That they would be encouraged in heart and united in love. Some translations, maybe the Bible you're reading, it says knit together. That's a beautiful picture, right? That they would be not just united, like agreeing, but they would be knit together, bound together in love. Encouraged in heart. And united together in love. A a community of people like a tapestry woven together that's holding each other up and strengthening each other. Teaching each other and instructing each other in God's word. Fighting for each other and meeting each other's needs. Serving one another. United together in love. There's this sense of security and strength that we get because this community that we're a part of is united in love. Acts 18, verse 23 says this, After spending some time in Antioch, Paul went out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phyria, strengthening all the disciples. That word strengthening is parakaleo. He's strengthening, he's meeting, and he's encouraging and strengthening these disciples churches these disciples as he goes there's this this special connection that paul has and with his disciples this strengthening that takes place simply by his presence with them united in love teaching them instructing them sharing with them praying with them my point here in all of this is that this this connection this unity this special something that happens amongst the people of God is really important. It's really important. It's really important for this church in that day that they would be united in love. And, and I don't want us to miss this here because I think it's equally as important for our church today. Over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, Paul talks about unity. The church needs to be unified, be, have unity and have love for one another. Right? Right? There's this idea of unity and love that the, the people of God have for one another. And Why is that so important? I believe it's, it's for survival. I believe that it was so important to Paul in that day, in that age, that the people be united and holding each other up and encouraging each other because of the the persecution and the pressures that they're going to face, that they had to have this, this tapestry holding them together so that they would not fail. I think Paul knew that when bickering entered in and disunity entered in and when celebrating at the failures of others Made its way into the church rather than unity in love that the church would not survive the church would fail and church, I believe the same is true for us today. What kind of people, what kind of body are we going to be as a church? are we going to be this in in here i 'm talking about not just big c church but the church in This room, the church that meets here at 501 Hillside, what kind of a people are we going to be? We're going to encourage each other's hearts and strengthen each other, be unified together, holding each other up, teaching each other, instructing each other, sharing God's word with each other, praying together, meeting people. And when they have struggles that they're going through, do we meet with them, share the word of God with them? Sometimes we talk about these things and people say, well, what does that, what do you mean? What does it look like? What's a practical way it looks like to be united in love and holding each other up and caring for one? Let me give you one example. Eight years ago, Carrie and I uh, added two amazing people to our family, Caleb and Izzy. We adopted them from Ghana. And in that time of bringing those kids into our family, so we went from a family of five to a family of seven, when those kids came into our life, it was a lot, right? Like going from five to seven. And there's this thing that you do when you adopt kids and you bring them in your home. It, it's, the word is cocooning. It's just a weird word, right? But you, you, you kind of like batten down the hatches and you don't let anybody else into your home. You like close down your home so that, so that you can become this family unit. So no one else is coming in and making bonds and connections with your family and with your kids. And so we entered this time of cocooning. It was really weird and hard and challenging, right? Like you're spending all your time. No one else is coming over. Like grandma and grandpa aren't coming over. It's like kind of weird. And one of the things that was really stressful is just thinking about food and meals and all this. And the people in this room provided six weeks of food and meals for our family. Guys, we did not cook one time. We had so much food We were giving food away. We had a freezer full of food. The people in this church, in often over and over, when those meals were dropped off and they knew they couldn't come inside and talk with us to say hello and all that, and waved through the door, time after time, there was a post-it note on that meal with a Bible verse that said, we're praying for you. We're encouraging you. We're lifting you up in prayer. This church met Our need in such an amazing way unified in love caring for us I wasn't a pastor on staff at the time I was sitting in the in the chairs just like you all are being cared for by this body and I know that there's things there's people in this room who have met with people in the hospital when things are really hard and they've gone and they've cared for them I can think of times when there were people deeply struggling in this church and they needed prayer. And there, there's, there are people in this church that, w- that went to their house and circled their house, holding hands and praying for those people in that house that they would receive healing or guiding or peace or direction or whatever it is. That's the kinds of things that we do as a people of God that help unite us in love, holding each other up, strengthening each other. This is what is so important to Paul. So why? Why is this Paul's goal? Why is this Paul's goal? Let, let's look at verses two and three because we get a little bit of answers here. Why, why strong hearts? Why people united in love? Let me read two and three. So that they may have, a, have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and in knowledge, So Paul is saying here that strong heart, encouraged hearts and a unified community, unified people, people unified in love allow us to experience, allow the experience of a full and rich understanding and knowledge of Christ. A deeper, more meaningful, more, imp- more important, more full, more rich understanding and experience of who Jesus is. Of, of who Christ is. We have this, this full and rich understanding. Our hearts are strong and we're unified in love and, and that moves us to this, this fuller understanding of the Messiah, of who Jesus is. This is what Paul yearns for. This is what he is contending for is this full, deep, rich understanding and experience with Jesus. Jesus. He also adds on to here, it's almost like a a side note, right? That, oh yeah, and by the way, all truth, everything you need, all wisdom and knowledge, complete sufficiency happens in Jesus. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's nothing else that we need to, know, to add to it. That Jesus is enough. That's what Paul is saying here. We, we've used this equation before here at GBC, right? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is what Paul is talking about here. That Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. There's no other philosophy or thought or ideas that you need to add in. Jesus is enough. Paul goes on to say that we need this. We need this full, this rich treasure, understanding of Christ. Because here in verse 4, he writes, I tell you this, so I'm, I'm telling you this, that you, that you have encouraged hearts, that you're united in love, so that you have this full and rich understanding of Christ. I'm telling you this so that no one may be deceived. No one will deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So Paul's being really clear here. He's, without getting into the naming names and, and specifics, he's saying that there are people bent on teaching you things about Jesus or about the church or about how this all works that are different than the truth, are different than what Paul had instructed them in, different than the truth about Christ. There's these outside influences and their arguments are really (laughs) fine-sounding. Their arguments are convincing. And so you must have, in order to not be deceived by these things, you must be encouraged in your heart, strengthened in your heart, unified in love with this rich understanding of the knowledge of God and who Christ is, set on that with all your your being. You have this full understanding so that you are not deceived. This This is what Paul is contending for. Remember, the church in Colossae was a new church and and there were pressures on that church to follow different philosophies and Gnosticism was present. All these things, we've talked about some of this already. There's these influences on the church and and Paul does not want them to be deceived. He, He wants them to stay the course. He wants them to grow. Finally, Paul closes out this portion of his letter in he writes in verse five. For although I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are, and how firm your faith in Christ is. This interesting phrase, right? I'm with you, and present with you in, in spirit. It's Paul talking about this that kind of unique connection that we have as believers with believers all over the place. There's a unique connection that there's this presence we have and knowledge we have of each other in the Spirit. But the primary takeaway from this passage for us is is what Paul describes as their faith, what Paul describes as admirable about their faith, what Paul is pointing to to say, I'm delighted, right? Paul is delighted. This is what he's excited about. He's excited to see how disciplined they are and how firm they are in Christ, how firm their faith is. It's kind of interesting to think about what Paul is delighted in for this church, what Paul is excited about, what, Paul, what makes Paul happy for this church, what they're doing, right? I mean, think about explaining. If, if you were to explain your church to someone else, and say, hey, tell me about your church. Well, we're disciplined and firm. That's what we are. It's delightful. It's not really what we think of, right? It's not really how we maybe describe our church. We're disciplined and firm. It's interesting here that, that Paul uses this to say that that is what delights him. What, what's Paul talking about here? What does it look like to be disciplined and firm? Why is that good? What is... Why is that what the aim is for the church? Why does that delight Paul? Most scholars tell us that the words that Paul is using here in disciplined or ordered and firm are actually military terms, common military terms, that they are disciplined, well-ordered. And I think of this what does it mean to be well-ordered or disciplined as, a, as an individual person but also as a church, as people of God? I believe that this means that the, these folks, these people are, are making uh, decisions every day to shape their lives ar- and follow Jesus. That they're saying no to certain things, that they're having discipline in their lives, say I'm not going to do that, I'm not part of that anymore, I'm not choosing that anymore. Instead I'm, I'm following Jesus, I'm choosing Jesus. Jesus, I'm choosing to be like him, that their lives are becoming more and more and more and more like Jesus. That their conduct in life is more like Jesus, that they're they're being more disciplined, they're making time to, to Shape their lives to be more like Christ, the things that they care about, so instead of thinking about and caring about them themselves they 're thinking about and caring about others, serving others that their their lives are changing to be more and more and more like Jesus in conduct and concern and character they're being well disciplined that they're as a as a individuals and as a people of god that 's what they're doing as well that they're becoming a community that's that's more and more and more like jesus that they're They're pursuing him, that they're disciplined in their lives, making the right choices, the difficult choices, the sacrificial choices, the generous choices. He says that they're well-disciplined, they're they're well-ordered, and they're firm. Firm in their faith. What does that mean? What does it mean to be firm in your faith? It's this idea of being steadfast or stable or resolute solid, that you're not not flighty or whimsical, that you're not grasping onto any new thought or crazy idea or whatever, that you're, you're solid, you're grounded in your faith, you're, you're in, grounded in the truth, not, not blown by the wind, right? This is what Paul is, is admiring and is happy about in this church and in these holy people of God. What sets these believers apart is they're, they're, they're disciplined and, and that they're firm in their faith. Faithful Christians who, are, who, have, who have made decisions to live orderly lives and have remained firm and are, are, are firm in their faith. When I think about our church and the hope and prayer I have for our church, the things that we pursue as a church, the truth is, is that there's a lot of things that we, we don't get right and don't, don't do well. We make mistakes all the time. and We, we bobble technology. We, I, there's all sorts of things that we, we do as a church that we don't, that we don't do well, but I do believe, and our prayer here as church, as a church, as leaders and pastors and, and people in this room is that we, that we would order our lives under Jesus. All right, here's the test. Because I did it a couple weeks ago. What does it say on the sign in the Welcome Center? Welcome. And then what? In the green text underneath. Helping people follow Jesus, right? That's what we are about here at Glen Helen Bible Church. That we want to order our lives. We want to be disciplined in our lives, and, and we want to help each other follow Jesus and remain firm in our faith. Would, would these be the things that we would be admired for? I'm not saying that when somebody asks you, what's your church like, that you say disciplined and firm. There's other ways to say that, right? That we, we say, man, we, we're, we're people, we are broken, fallen sinners, but we're, we're trying to follow Jesus and we're trying to help other people do it. That the thing that's the center of our church that we're, we're trying to, to delight in is that we are following Jesus and helping others do the same. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word this morning that's challenging, encouraging for us. God, I thank you for Paul and his pastoral heart for the church. And I thank you for his words that encourage that church, but also our church. God, I pray that we would be people that are encouraged in heart, united in love, holding on to the rich treasure of the Messiah, Jesus and that we would be disciplined and firm in our faith. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.